Dan was a pretty good student. Is synonymous with Dan sucks. Yeah, yeah. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we wonder, can a grad school application really predict which students will succeed? Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 65. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Hey, Dan. Josh, good to see you. Good to see you. What's new? Um, so many things are new. We got a new president now. That's something. Horn noise. <laughs> <laughs> Great sound effects. So I've been told. We need a Foley artist. Uh, let's try to keep this apolitical. Yeah, speaking of um, sound effects, I have in my hand something that will make a very distinctive sound. Would you like to hear it? Let's hear it. Oh... We got a can tonight. Yep. yep. Now, what did you what did you find for us? All right, Dan. I'm super excited about this beer. I think I say that most weeks, but this is actually a special beer for me. This is from Cigar City Brewing in Tampa, Florida. This is the Hialai India Pale Ale. Spell it for everybody because it does not look like it's spelled Hialai. Yeah, it's not unless you're from Florida and know this beer already. It's not spelled at all like you think. This is J A I, second word A L A I. So I have to say, when I was in Tampa, um, so I was in Tampa back in November for a conference, and I was at a bar, and the bartender asked me what I typically like, and I said, oh, I like an IPA usually. And so he was like, oh, I'm going to give you the high lie. What I heard was the high life. Yum. <laughs> Wait a second. That's not an IPA. I thought, what kind of bartender is this? I told him like an IPA. He said, oh, here's the high life. <laughs> the champagne of IPAs. Disgusting. Uh, but what he'd said, I found out later, because actually when he gave me my beer, it was one of the most delicious IPAs that I've ever had, Dan. That's exciting. And so it's this highlight. And actually, I liked it so much that later in the conference, I took an Uber over to Cigar City Brewing. Fantastic place. If you're ever in Tampa, absolutely check it out. I did a flight, all six beers out of this world that's rare to get yeah. six that are worth tasting absolutely so this one i looked it up and the distribution they're in a few other states in the mid-atlantic virginia maryland but not north carolina so actually i have a a student who is from florida and so when she went home for the holiday break i asked her if she would be so kind to bring me a six-pack of highlight and she did so that's what we're drinking. I feel like you're developing a network of like <laughs> beer smugglers that bring you beer from different places. Remember we got the special strawberry beer from Louisiana that's and now right. we've got a high lie. It's, um, not, it's not what you know, it's who you know. So Josh, <laughs> can I taste oranges? Are there actually oranges in it? No, there are no oranges in it, but you know, I like these IPAs that are really floral, really fruity. Yeah, power of suggestion. Just the can is making me believe that it's citrus. Yeah, well, I'm glad that Sophia, I'd like to give her a shout out that she brought this to us and glad I could share it with you tonight. All right. Well, thank you, Sophia. I'll enjoy this. I'm having mine from the can. You have yours from a glass because that's how we roll. All right, Dan. Are you ready for some science in the news? Always ready. All right, Dan, you might have seen in the news last week that scientists officially declared 2016 as the hottest year on record. 
Usually, breaking records is a good thing. This doesn't seem like a good thing. Yeah, not the best. And, you know, to be fair, it wasn't a very long-standing record because do you happen to know the previous hottest year on record? Um, was it the year before? It was. Oh, no. 2015, which beat out the previous record of 2014. So now we're, we're three in a row. We're three in a row. But the interesting thing, Dan, is that almost 20 years ago, in 1998... Similar to today, we declared that that year was actually the hottest to date. But the interesting thing was, from 1998, throughout most of the early 2000s, this warming trend that scientists had observed seemed to slow down or even stop. And some climate scientists even referred to this as a global warming pause. I don't know if you if you heard of this at all. I did, yes. And so this confounded scientists a little bit, um, but to global warming critics and skeptics, this pause that was noted in the early 2000s was really, to them, evidence that global warming either wasn't anything to get worked up about or wasn't really anything that was happening at all. Yeah, the models didn't predict it, and therefore the models must all be wrong, and we're all fine, let's keep emitting whatever we want to into the atmosphere. Yeah, my new slogan, this is fine. <laughs> it doesn't seem as hot. Today's not so hot. <laughs> like the senator who brought the snowball into the... It snowed today. So, uh, but anyway, Dan, this all changed in 2015 when the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or the NOAA, have you heard of those guys? NOAA. NOAA, as the cool kids call it. So they published a study in science, which actually interested me. I guess it makes sense. Government scientists, they're publishing in peer-reviewed journals also. Anybody who can will publish in science. I guess that's true. No, I don't want to publish in science. I guess that's true. But in their study in 2015, they demonstrated that ocean surface temperatures, which is a key indicator of overall global temperatures, they found that during the early 2000s, when they previously thought there was this pause, that actually temperatures were likely higher than they originally thought because of flaws in how measurements were taken at the time measurements matter. So what was the flaw? Did they figure it out? So it it turns out there were several ways that scientists were monitoring ocean temperature. And one of the key ways back in the day... Putting their toe in? (laughs) (laughs) It feels pretty warm to me. One data source were, were these global ships. And so what they would actually do on these ships is they would draw the ocean water into the engine room and then they would take its temperature manually there. Okay. Now, if I know anything about engine rooms, <laughs> is that they have a neutral temperature that is not going to change the... Yeah, so it turns out that this was a widely practiced way of taking ocean temperatures. It maybe wasn't the most accurate due to, as you astutely pointed out, changes in the temperature of the water. It's really hard to get the ocean to hold the thermometer under its tongue the way it needs <laughs> to for a long enough... You know, you know how it is. It's true, it's true. And I guess there was a lot of manual reading of the temperature in this method also, right? I'm just imagining, and I'm sure it was more sophisticated than this, somebody holding a mercury thermometer into the water and then kind of reading the the temperature. That's probably not true. But anyway... We've all done it. But anyway, that was was one way that temperature was, was taken. So in this 2015 study, what they did was they actually started utilizing temperature sources from these buoys that were floating out in the ocean that were taking temperature directly from the buoy and transmitting it directly to a satellite. So this was a much more precise and much less biased um, 
temperature reading. That seems better. And can't they use a satellite to just read the ocean temperature? Yeah, so that's actually one additional way that, that ocean temperatures can be taken now. And so what they did was they realized there were differences between the temperatures taken with these buoys or satellites and the temperatures that were taken the old way through the uh, manual ships. And so what they did was they realized that what that actually did was made this cold water bias in the temperature. So all they did in their, it's not all they did, but in their science paper was they provided an adjustment factor for their data set. So the NOAA actually maintains this big data set that is pretty fundamental in how climate scientists actually view what's going on with the climate. And so when they adjusted their readings, that pause, that global warming pause seemed to disappear immediately. So this pause may have just been a measurement error. Which is, um, you know, that happens. We we take a measurement, we steer by it, and then it turns out, oops, the thermometer was miscalibrated or whatever. Yeah, and, you know, as scientists, Dan, I mean, you and I, we don't really bat an eye at that. We think, you know what? Yeah, as technology improves and as we just get more experienced in uh, measuring or studying whatever we study, we make tweaks, we make improvements, and we get better at understanding these things. But not everybody views it that way. Yeah, I'm not upset by this finding, except that it's bad news. But I'll bet you there's a conspiracy theory somewhere in here, right? Uh, yeah, well, and actually it was a little more high profile than that. So this study was quickly rebuked by many conservative politicians, and notably Lamar Smith, Republican of Texas, and he was the chair um, he is the chair of the House Science, Space, and Technology Committee. And so he actually accused scientists of altering data for political purposes. And as Congress tends to do, um, they publicly denounced the scientists and opened a congressional investigation against them and subpoenaed their emails. It's a good time to be a scientist, isn't it, Josh? <laughs> well, and keep in mind, Dan, these were governmental scientists. So these were scientists from the NOAA. So a lot of scrutiny there. Email subpoenas public denunciation by the science committee. But that was 2015. Fast forward to last week. All those scientists were executed. (laughs) God rest their soul. (laughs) So fast forward to last week, Dan, and a different group of scientists, this time from UC Berkeley, published an independent study, also in science, that actually confirmed the NOAA's calculations. Basically what they did was they wanted to independently confirm what the NOAA found. So they used these homogeneous measurements. So they looked at evidence of only measurements by the buoys, only measurements by the ships, and only measurements actually by this other thing that's called the Argo floats, which are pretty cool. I used to wear those to be able to swim when I was a kid. Well, did you know there's this network of over 4,000 floats across the world that lots of countries maintain, and they all transmit to the same place, um, and it's this thing called Argo, and they measure all these things about the ocean. There's a cool video that explains Argo floats to kids that I spent six minutes watching today. It's okay. pretty fascinating. We'll put a link we'll up. We'll put a link to it. Um, but anyway, Dan, main take-home message is the NOAA results seem to be the same, and turns out global warming might be a real thing after all. And it turns out science is political, and you can get in trouble for doing the truth-seeking that you're doing for a living. Yeah, little, little unfortunate side side story inside that story you told me. Yeah, and you know I was thinking a lot about that this week as I read about this new study and was thinking about just this whole situation. And you know, Dan, 
I think this is important for a lot of reasons because we've probably observed this. You've probably noticed too this anti-science thread that has started to creep up in our society. Um, And, you know, I think at best it's counterproductive, but, you know, at worst it's somewhat dangerous because if you think about scientists, I mean, we've been in science for quite a while now and I don't know about you, but I haven't observed any vast scientific conspiracy. I think people don't realize how science actually works. It's not like we're all patting each other on the back. Uh, my thought is, you know, scientific findings on their face aren't necessarily political, um, but how we respond to them certainly can be That's very political. Uh, but I think what I would like to see is less disparaging of researchers and data just because the new evidence doesn't fit our worldview or agenda. And let's have conversations about what we, how we react to these results without attacking directly the results themselves. That would require the public to have a very nuanced understanding of what science is. And um, I think we need it, but it's a tough road to hoe. Yeah, and this is probably a topic for another day, but as people involved in outreach to the public with science, we've always focused on teaching people about interesting scientific topics but what we should probably be doing with science outreach is teaching more scientific thinking and scientific process. Amen. So let's, do it. let's talk about that someday, but not today. But anyway, Dan, thought that was interesting and just wanted to share. And if you want to read more about this, we will post the actual articles and some write-ups about them in the show notes. Cross your fingers for 2017. Go team. <laughs> Winning. Hey, Dan, speaking of some more results that were published last week, I got a paper out. That's pretty fantastic. Yeah, and it, it makes it even sweeter, Dan. Your name is in the text as well. Yeah, I, I heard that it, I was uh, a footnote in there. Yeah, you can you can Alt-F find in the text, and you can type your name in, and you will find it there in the acknowledgments. Very exciting. Now, tell us uh, what a great job I did, and then tell us the small part you contributed. Yeah, so I think our listeners, this is not just... Totally me being narcissistic and tooting my own horn here by talking about my paper. Of course, it is our podcast, yeah, so I can do it. It was a tremendous paper. Everybody's (laughs) saying it's the best paper. We had the best data (laughs) and the best words in this best paper. Everybody's saying so. This came out a week ago in PLOS One, and so the title of the paper was Predictors of Student Productivity in Biomedical Graduate School Applications, and so... I assume a lot of our listeners will find this interesting because I bet a lot of them at some point in time filled out a graduate school application. Yeah. the Let me see if I can um, state the problem here so that everybody gets why this matters. Let's say you're running a biomedical research training program at a major university. Um, you probably get a bunch of applications from really smart people who are at the top of their game, coming out of college, coming out of industry, coming out of um, research experiences. And maybe you have 20 positions and you have 100 applications. Um, certainly you can't look at everybody's, you know, you can't meet them and watch them in the lab. So you have to rely on what they send you in that paper document or in that, I guess, electronic document, right? Yeah, that's exactly Which parts should you look at to find out who the best students are? Who's going to have the best chance of success um, at doing well in the program and at succeeding in the next steps of their career? Yeah, you're exactly right, Dan. Admissions committees have to make decisions from large numbers of applicants 
who they think would be has the most promise based on this application that's made up of of GRE scores and GPAs, transcripts, personal statements, letters of recommendation. And you know, well, I think this is important, Dan, to back up a little bit. You know, if you think about leadership positions in science, the vast majority of them require a PhD. And and so essentially you could think about graduate school and the PhD as being a gatekeeper for moving into these leadership positions. So everyone in those positions at some point had to enter through that gate, meaning that they submitted one of these applications and it was reviewed favorably and they moved on to the next level, right? So conversely, if you're not able to make it past that gate, then you're not going to move on to leadership. So PhD is kind of that. It's the gate. The gate. Yeah. Yeah, And it's such a hard problem to parse because a PhD training program is not the same as your undergraduate research. I bet you I could look at your GPA and, and look at how you did in high school and find out how well you'll do taking classes and taking tests. But it's not just that. It's also how are you going to do research, which is a totally new experience that I don't have a great number to put on. How are you going to interact with people in your lab, with your PI? Are you going to have enough uh, emotional and friend support um, to get through the really tough times? Are you going to have uh, the ability to write so that you can actually publish your work? I mean, there's no quick answer to this. And, and there may not even be previous experience that I can just check a box and say, yep, Josh will be great at this. Yeah, you're relying on very limited information to try to fill in a lot of blanks um, just by looking at these these metrics on pieces of paper. And so, you know, Dan, if you think about, as you're talking about things that are important to learn in grad school, one of the things is to critically analyze everything, to ask questions. And so one thing that, that we thought was interesting and something I thought a lot about was, well, you know, we think critically about everything, but if we think about the graduate school application, it's remained largely unchanged from when we applied and even before that. So for decades, admissions committees have been looking at the same criteria for the most part to choose which students come into their program. And there's been very little effort to actually assess what are the things that we're looking for and we're asking for in these graduate applications. Do they actually predict the things we want to predict, they actually predict who's going to do well in graduate school. And so, you know, another thing that was interesting to me, Dan, I mentioned on the show, I work a lot with students who are interested in going to graduate school. And one thing I observed was, you know, I would see students who were doing awesome in the lab. They really had what it takes to, to go to grad school, but maybe their GRE scores were below like what an average score would be for a certain school. And I found that those students had a harder time getting into as many programs as maybe a student that I observed who really wasn't as strong in the lab, but they had the test scores and the GPA, and they would get a lot more acceptances. And I thought, well, this is kind of strange. It seems like the student over here that's really performing well in the lab, if I had to bet, would probably be the one that's going to have an easier time in grad school. And so those were some of the background questions that led us to actually look like, okay, well, let's take a bunch of grad students who started a number of years ago. And let's see, well, how well did they do in graduate school? And we could kind of compare them and see the ones who really, you know, they were really productive. They got their PhD, they published a lot of papers versus students who maybe withdrew from grad school or who, you know, really didn't publish many papers. Was there anything different between those two groups in their application? Okay, so it seems like you need data. Um, I'm assuming you're not going to do this based on four stories you heard from people. So where are you going to get your your research subjects? Well, one thing that's lucky for me, Dan, is I work in an office that runs a big 
umbrella biomedical PhD program. And so we do admissions for 14 different biomedically, biological related PhD programs. And so we basically, we took three years of students from who entered grad school from 2008, 2010, and that ended up being 270 graduate students. And so what we could do is we could access all of their application data for those 270 students. But then what we had to do is we had to say, okay, well, we, we've got all their application data. What metrics are we going to use to determine how successful or productive they were when they were in grad school? The evenness of their Western blot bands. That should be the readout. <laughs> That's right. I looked at lots of, uh, lots of radiographs. Who else? had the neatest desk? Yeah, that would not be me. So one thing I want to make clear is at the very beginning, we were very careful in the words we choose for our assessments of students. And so I mentioned the word productivity and success. We made a decision not to go in the direction of looking at or talking about framing our data in the context of success, because it turns out, I think success in graduate school is a very complex thing. And depending on who you're talking to, whether you're talking to the student or the PI or even the institution, Success means different things to different people, and that's a harder thing to measure. For some of us, success is just getting out of there. Absolutely. Yeah. And so what we decided to do was use the term productivity and measure that by first authorships on manuscripts. Yeah, and that's a that's a common um, currency for scientists. We worry about how many first author papers you get to get your PhD, and, and we would look at that if you were a postdoc. And certainly as a a faculty member as a researcher. And, you know, it's not a perfect metric, but one of the reasons we went with publications and authorships is the reality is, at least in the biomedical sciences, getting at least one or two first author publications is a graduation requirement for most departments. That's a standard expectation for a grad student that's kind of meeting expectations when they finish, is one or two first author papers. And, you know, you would probably say somebody who finished grad school with three or more publication, first author publications, that was pretty good. You know? I would call them quite productive, and that's the word you chose. Yeah, and then compare that to maybe a student who went through graduate school five, six, seven years with no first author publications, that that would maybe be, on average, less productive than the student who had three or more. Certainly, there will be luck in the mix, and there will be Absolutely. lots of different things. But yeah, it's fair. So, so to make it more simple, you want to find out, is there anything on this application that is going to predict how many papers this student is able to publish in their time in grad school. That's right. And so so we bend all of these 270 students into four groups. And so we did just what I sort of alluded to a second ago. We had students who had three or more first author papers. That was our highly productive group. Then we had students who had one or two first author papers. That was kind of our standard expectation, standard productivity group. Um, and then we had the students with no first author papers while in graduate school, and we actually subdivided those into students who had no first author papers, but at least one middle authorship. And then the last group was students who had zero authorships during their time. But I want to say too, Dan, just about this choosing publications, there was a paper that came out a few years ago uh, from UCSF, and they, in a more rudimentary way, kind of did some of these Asked some of these same questions uh, with a much smaller group. I think they looked at about 40 or 50 students, but their output for productivity or success was actually asking faculty their opinions on well, which students were good, which students were not good. And they divided them basically into two groups, high performing and low performing. Um, so they published this 
And and they found actually similar things. GREs and those types of things didn't correlate. But <laughs> the interesting thing about that study was some students from UCSF published a rebuttal to that study because they actually took offense because they were using the term success and the subjective assessments of their own success um, didn't go over very well with the students. Yeah, it's a sensitive topic and, and it matters how you set your metrics, I guess. Yeah, and so we wanted something that was an objective measure that, you know, we could argue if it's, you know, we could argue the validity of that measurement, but anyone could find the same data and do the same analyses on them. You want a buoy with a thermometer, not a guy in the engine. That's right. No one's opinion was involved in these data. So that's what we want to do. So basically, Dan, we looked at all these different parts of the application to see if there are any differences between these high-performing students and these less productive students. And, you know, the first thing we looked at were the GRE scores, and it turned out no difference between the most productive and least productive students with regards to verbal or quantitative GRE scores. Now, the GRE has a cutoff, doesn't it, in terms of admissions? Are you actually leaving a group of people out of grad school entirely if they don't achieve some minimum GRE score? So some schools do have a cutoff, and I think that's still a thing. Um, but I will say at UNC, that's not something that we've ever had. We don't we do not do a cutoff, at least not for the programs I'm involved in. And, you know, we had a number of students with below average GRE scores, you know, scores as low as the 20th percentiles and in the 50th percentiles. Okay, so it's not as if you just sliced off the the top 25% and and then did your assessment where maybe all those people were kind of similar. No, there was a pretty good range of GRE scores and there were a number of students with really, really pretty low GRE scores who were very productive in grad school. And interestingly, there were a number of students who had almost perfect test scores um, that really struggled as graduate students. And so I'll mention too, on the same day our paper was published, we had a sister study by Vanderbilt where they looked specifically at the GRE and found exactly the same thing with their own PhD students. That The GRE was not predictive of any of the things that we're interested in. And they looked beyond just publications, but they looked at success on the prelim exam, they looked at graduation time, they looked at number of grants and all this stuff. And Jerry didn't seem to predict any of those things. Did you hear that, students? More evidence that you wasted $200 <laughs> or whatever it costs now. I have yeah, no idea. It's, it's $200 to end up. Yeah. And so... Go demand your money back. Yeah, I guess so. So anyway, that was... Uh, you know, maybe not surprising. I think just added to the mounting evidence that the GRE is maybe not the best metric for graduate admissions, at least not for um, scientific research PhD programs. You can buy a lot of things with $200. I'm sorry I'm a little bit stuck on this, but if it's not actually going to help anybody predict uh, your success, A, it's a lot of stress. Yeah, B, it's a lot of money. And you know, the crazy thing about the GRE is beside, and it is $200 actually to register now, but you have to pay... $27 per school that you send it to. I, I can't imagine that the transmission of electrons is a $27. <laughs> you know, that always makes me think of, you know, back in the day when text messages used to cost like 25 cents each and it was like, like how many bits of data would a text message be? Yeah, it's insane. And the cost of 25 cents for each message, totally exorbitant. I think this is in the same <laughs> same ballpark as that. Um, so anyway, we also looked at GPAs, and we actually found the same thing. GPAs, zero difference among our productivity groups with regard to GPA. I mean, the GPA, you can you can see it being a little bit harder to use as a predictor because every school is grading differently, every class is grading differently. Some universities have documented grade inflation, some haven't. 
Um, I, you know, I could imagine that it's a little bit messier as a metric. You know, as I referenced before, I think it's predicting how well you do at a standard class test format, not how well you're going to do doing research and writing a paper. Yeah. Not that the GRE is a better predictor of how you're going to do work in the lab, but you know what I mean. No, you're right. GPA is very complicated. There are a lot of different ways you could slice it, things we didn't look at yet. Like, how many science classes did you have? That just GPA number, there's a lot that goes into that. But yeah, Dan, what you said is absolutely true. As we know, and as our listeners know, the things required of you to do well in graduate school Totally different than what's required of you to do well in maybe a lecture type class um, as an undergraduate. So my next guess is that the real thing that matters is experience, right? So it's not your how you well you did in your classes and taking tests. It's did you actually spend time in a lab as an undergraduate or in a post back research program? And did you develop some of the skills and actually test your love of science? Um, and maybe that's a better predictor of how well you're going to do. So the answer to that is yes and no. So I love that answer. <laughs> Very clear. So one of the things we looked at, actually, this was surprising, Dan, because I totally expected that to be the case as well. So the next thing we looked at was actually, well, let's tally up the amount of research experience that students had before they started grad school. Time-based, like total number of years? Total number, yeah. So we, we actually did it by months. And so, yeah, you would expect, all right, people have spent a lot of time in the lab before grad school probably going to have an easier time than people who were newer to the lab. I think I started my sophomore year as an undergrad working in a soybean genetics lab. Yeah, you started before me. It was uh, spring semester my junior year before I got into the lab. Slacker. Well, this data vindicates me a little bit because, uh, so it turns out just raw amount of time in the lab before grad school, not at all predictive of how well students do in grad school. Now, big caveat to that. Of those 280 stu- or 270 students we looked at, none of them had no research experience. So okay. anymore, and I actually remember this, Dan, when we were in grad school, when we started grad school, there were still a handful of people, a couple people that I remember who had no research experience before they started grad school. I can think of at least two. Do you remember if they made it through the program? One guy, I'm pretty sure he did not. Yeah. But uh, I can't remember the other one. Um, N equals two, that's data. <laughs> so so that is a caveat. So I don't think you could conclude that ah, research experience doesn't matter. Uh, but I think what our data, what, what it does show is that just a lot of research by itself does not necessarily mean it's better than less research. It's not a guarantee of success or of productivity. Yeah, and I think that makes sense too because, as you know, Dan, uh, there's a lot of variability depending on the quality of the training experience, depending on the lab and the mentorship that you had and you know the best, the good fit for you in the environment. Maybe you're doing more research, uh, you're spending more time in the lab. Let's say you graduated and then decided to take a year off to go do research. Maybe that's because you didn't feel like you were ready to go to graduate school. So it's not as if those extra um, months in the lab are uh, going to predict your success. There are a lot of different reasons to do more research. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But Dan, related to that, and one of the last things we looked at that actually did seem to correlate with productivity in grad school was the letters of recommendation. I thought those were all made up and, uh, I mean, not made up, okay, but don't people usually write very positive, glowing things, and it always sounds like it, you're the best student ever? They absolutely do. Uh, it's very rare to read 
a negative letter. And I read and a lot of... if you do, of, it's a red flag, right? Oh, a, a negative letter <laughs> would be very big red flag because it's so rare. But what you learn to do on admissions committees, it's really interesting, is you learn to decode the degree of positiveness <laughs> in the letter, how effusive is the letter, right? Yeah, you can be damned by faint praise, right? I mean, it's almost like a letter that says, Dan was a pretty good student, is synonymous with Dan sucks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, but what we did, because we didn't get so sophisticated as do, doing text mining or anything like that, you may or may not know this, but when recommenders submit letters of recommendation, most places, in addition, there's some sort of rating scale, like a Likert scale type rating system. Yeah, one through 10 or one through six. I strongly disagree. Exactly. So for our applications, there was this one to five scale that was like, how great is this student? Where five is exceptional all the way to to one. The greatest. (laughs) Exactly. And so what we decided to do, this is actually one of the last things because I thought it was so unlikely that this would show anything that I almost didn't do it. It is the most subjective. I mean, it's not a... I mean, it is. And and it's such a it's such a rough scale. It's like this five-point scale. And I also knew it's a little bit, even though it's just five-point scale, it, even within that, it's a little bit of a compressed scale because it's very unusual. I don't know if I've ever seen a one, right? One being the worst score. Very few twos. So really, three, four, fives, that's where the majority of the numbers lay. So if you think about three letters you know, you're dealing with an average of three numbers, most of which are three, four, five. And can that really distribute these 270 applicants? But it turns out the students who had, and and very clearly, the students who had the highest recommender scores really were publishing more papers on average than the students who maybe had one excellent and two very goods or three very goods compared to three excellents. And I think what that might mean is, and I've written some letters too, is, you know, you're going to write a very supportive letter. But when you're faced with this five-point scale, you probably are going to reserve that top, top rating for a student you really do feel like is a top, top student. They, and not a top, top student based on GRE scores or GPA. In a lot of cases... You may not know. You don't know or care, but how well you have observed them actually functioning as a researcher in your lab. Is there a difference in who writes these letters and who fills out these forms? Can I get my barber to fill one out, my wife to fill one out? Um, or or is it you know is it is it only research advisors or could it be your humanities professor yeah that's a good question i mean you could ask those those people but you know most admissions committees most of the time there are instructions in the application that these should be letters from individuals who know your professional work know your research work so the majority of these are people who have observed you in a lab setting now if an individual's had maybe less than three lab experiences it might be one or two lab recommenders, and then maybe someone who's like a professor in the department or something like that. The sales rep for the guy who drops <laughs> off the pipette tips. Yeah. He loves me. Yeah. But actually, we did that too. We made note of letters that were actually from direct research advisors, and it was the same thing. Okay. Well, that's helpful. Kind of the last little piece of data that I found interesting is one one feature of graduate admissions that I thought was going to be really useful for figuring out who who was um, most likely to succeed in graduate school, were these in-person interview scores. So you remember, Dan, when you applied to grad school, there's the application part. But then if you're lucky, you get your in-person interview. They fly you out. You spend all day going around meeting with faculty. You remember this? 
Of course I remembered. It was the, my best time in graduate school. <laughs> That's true. It was all downhill from there. Um, so anyway, what happens is when you go around talking to these five or six faculty, it seems like chit-chat and a laid-back good time, but actually they are rating you as well. They're giving a, like a one-to-five scale and writing some comments on what they thought about you. Those get averaged together, and that goes to the admissions committee. So our thinking was, well, you know, five of our faculty are talking to a person. You would think... They could do a pretty good job of sussing out someone's potential from from those meetings. Not so much, it turns out. Yeah, I, I probably would not have predicted that result, but now that I'm thinking about it, it's probably a measure of your ability to BS, right? If yeah. I can show up and be charming and get you to talk about your research but not really reveal a lot about myself, which is what I did, yeah, I could probably fly under the radar, make you think that I'm really smart and uh, that I'm going to be great at this job. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And I will say, again, as we kind of move into what are some caveats to to this study, you know, one of the, one of the caveats is that we only were obviously able to study students who got in to graduate school. And so the students who applied and, and were rejected, maybe went elsewhere, didn't go at all, maybe they all would have been terrible. And so the admissions process did a great job. We don't know. Is there any way to find those people or it'd be too much work to get I mean, a hold of them? You, you could. Um, I think it would be hard. So you have the applications and you have the, um, what you don't have is where they went and who they worked with. Because as I recall, when we were trying to pull data from PubMed, we took the student's name and the PI's name and did a, a search query to find out how many papers they had written together. It would require some Googling. I mean, I guess it would also it'd be a little trickier if they, after not getting into grad school, assuming maybe they didn't get anywhere, they no, did, no, no. did something didn't else. didn't get into grad school in your program. Right, right. right? But I'm saying if they happen to do something else entirely, maybe if they didn't get in anywhere. Um, I don't know. It'd be an interesting thing to look at. But, you know, one way I thought about this study was thinking about a controlled experiment. You know, here we've got this group of almost 300 students swimming in kind of the same pond at UNC. And we do have a range of, of numbers and metrics. And we have a difference in phenotypes. Students who really highly productive, those who are less productive, is there any way we can distinguish them based on these metrics over here on their application? It turns out the answer to that, for the most part, is no, with the exception of maybe some of these recommender ratings. You're talking about phenotypes. I got very afraid you were going to try and interbreed these students and try to produce an F1 generation. Oh, that's the next step. <laughs> I, <see. laughs> I, gotta I, get, think, I think IRB is going to have a problem. Yeah, with I'm that working one. on my IRB approval for that one. So if you sound inter- if you're interested in this study, you can email me. Podcast. <laughs> I, I think that violates some kind of ethic. I'm not sure which one. Yeah. And so another big caveat, Dan, I think this is really, really important and, and maybe an avenue for future research is our study, the Vanderbilt study, studies like it have really focused on the student and how features of the student um, are linked to their own productivity and success. And clearly that that is important. But what it ignores is the contribution of the research advisor. And the lab. And the lab, right. And, and the department. As we know very well on this show, because we talked to a lot of people in our own experiences, you could have a really great student with lots of potential who gets in a toxic lab environment and just bails or just falters because it's it's not a it's not an environment conducive to being productive um, or you know conversely you could have a lab and a really great advisor and mentor who really elevates their students and so getting into that environment you know you may be more productive because there's some there's some contribution of the mentor and that's not something that we have looked at yet 
It's tricky. Um, I will look forward to that episode when you answer the question for us. That's a little bit about the study. A couple things about what this might or might not mean. First thing, Dan, and we've, we've beaten this horse. I don't remember which episode we talked about the GRE previously, um, but there's research out there that, that different groups, for one reason or another, uh, perform differently on standardized tests like the GRE. And so the more that admissions committees rely on things like the GRE, if results like ours are right, that the GRE is minimally predictive for how well students are do, will do in grad school, the more admissions committees rely on the GRE, all they're really doing is possibly biasing against certain people groups, not to mention socioeconomic groups. As you pointed out, the GRE, not cheap. You know, asking people to pay a lot of money to take a test that really is not all that useful. But the other thing, Dan, is in an indirect way, these data say something we probably already knew, and that is grad school in the sciences, research PhD programs, experience seems to matter more than classroom ability. And I think that makes a lot of sense. I think we know doing well in our undergrad coursework was, did not necessarily prepare us for graduate school. Totally different ballgames. Yeah. And, and then the last thing is if we think about what we're trying to do with this information, we're really trying to share this broadly with admissions committees across the country. And at UNC, we're using these information, we're using this information to try to change how we do admissions. Um, I could imagine decreasing the influence of the GRE, maybe eliminating the GRE altogether, Save $200, spend it on something else. Well, and, you know, wouldn't we rather have our our applicants, our future scientists out there spending a little bit more time growing as researchers in the lab than studying their geometry problems and their their vocabulary words? Why aren't they good at antonyms? They'll never succeed. (laughs) So what I want to say is sometimes when, when you mention that, like, hey, what if you just eliminate the GRE altogether? There's kind of this instant... Yeah, we're in free fall now. We have nothing to hold on to. You just told me that everything that I was using out of this application is not a good predictor. Well, and so that's the next step, too. We're not talking about lowering the bar for admissions, but maybe changing the bar to something more relevant. And so what we should be doing as next steps is if we determine, hey, you know, some of these factors we've been using on applications aren't all that useful. Let's put some effort into thinking about some factors that might be useful. Maybe there are these psychosocial factors like grit, optimism, perseverance, motivation. Maybe some of these things are actually useful and predictive of how well students will do in grad school. And is there any way we can measure these on an application? And, and just as important, if those things are important for success in the lab, then maybe we could start instituting some training and some development for students in these areas. You have the data on the students um, that were part of your study, and you were not able to find in their applications predictors of success, but presumably there's some other data about them that may have predicted how many Facebook posts they had. (laughs) What's the size of their Twitter network? I don't know. Who knows? Who knows, Dan? Uh, Like anything else in research, the most interesting questions remain unanswered. But this is an ongoing area of study and one that we're really looking forward to continuing in the future. So I'll keep you posted. How awesome their pancake recipe is. Hey, I have a great pancake recipe. And you graduated. Look at that. (laughs) I did. And not to toot my own horn, but I had three first author publications. There it is. I think we've discovered it. Pancake uh, recipe deliciousness. Dan, also wanted to make sure you got your appropriate shout out. Could not have, have done this study efficiently without Daniel. I was sitting in a coffee shop and I was like, okay, I've got these 270 students and I need to look up their PubMed 
information on all of them. So, okay, first student, Smith and Jones. Enter one. And I had this thought, like, I bet a computer could do this a lot faster I felt so bad for you because you were going to do this one by one, and it was so tedious. <laughs> you had to click on the next thing and see if these were the same people. So Oh, it was terrible. I don't think the research ever would have, have been completed. But I actually was sitting there at this coffee shop, and I thought, well, geez, I bet a computer could do this. Who do I know that knows yeah. about computers and programming? Daniel. And so I think I sent you a message and you were gracious enough to um, to share with me your Python skills. And I learned a few things, um, but you really did the uh, did the heavy lifting. It wasn't a big it wasn't a, a big effort. It was well, probably less than you should know that for me it was nothing short of of Harry Potter magic that you did. Yeah. Go <laughs> so, learn to code, everybody listening. Yeah, so thank you for that. All right, Dan, let's talk about our etymology puzzle of the week. Okay, I'm, I'm glad we're here. The clue last week was, beware of people infected with this virus. They may fly into a furious rage at the sight of water. Any, any viruses that cause water anxiety? Uh, water anxiety? I don't know, Dan. The rage? I'm a bacteria guy. I don't know, Dan. Okay. Let me know. Well, this is caused by the rabies virus. Oh, rabies is sense. Latin for madness, rage, and fury. Um, and you're familiar with the idea of a rabid dog. Oh, yeah. And they foam at the mouth, and, and you shouldn't get near them, and they act unpredictably. Um, what's the side of water, though? That threw me. Well, so this is what's so cool. You know, I like microbiology because these tiny little, not even living things, this virus has such a clever uh, mechanism to reproduce itself. The rabies virus actually can reproduce in the salivary glands, and so it causes this oversalivation. But if the animal or the person could just swallow and drink a lot of water, then it wouldn't be able to propagate as much when, when it bit somebody. And so it causes the oversalivation, and then it also is able to sort of shut down the swallowing reflex. So at the sight of water, people will report um, this clenching in their throats and it causes them to panic. And so, um, and the same thing must happen in animals. So it's, it's like the sight of water causes them to go into this rage. So one of the other names for rabies, is, uh, particularly in humans, is hydrophobia because you have this reaction to seeing water. That is fascinating. I didn't know that. And I almost want to infect myself with the rabies virus just to experience this, to see if this is real. It is. Once you show signs and symptoms, it is fatal. So allow me to say, Hello PhD does not recommend infecting yourself with rabies to find out what hydrophobia feels like. Dan, if you see me wandering the streets during the day looking kind of chill... <laughs> Don't do it. Walking through my yard. <laughs> All right. Well, next week's clue is a follow-on. These two clues are related. Oh, good. I'll read it for you. This mental illness is marked by the frenzied fear that one is going mad. I'll read it one more time. This mental illness is marked by the frenzied fear that one is going mad. Remember, I'm looking for a scientific word described by the clue, and once you get it, you'll find the literal meaning of that science word as a phrase in the clue itself. If you think you know the answer, email it to puzzle at hellophd.com. I will randomly select a winner from all the correct responses and send the lucky puzzler an Amazon gift card. Excellent, Dan. I will look forward to all the responses flowing in. And you will go try to contract rabies for fun this week. I'm going to do my best. All right, Dan, this was a great 
show. Got to talk about a little research we're doing. That was cool. If you've got something you'd like to hear us talk about on the show, you can email us podcast at hellophd.com or you can tweet at us at hellophd. We love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, we like to read the feedback as well and helps people find the show. And I like this Hyalai. How do you pronounce it again? Hyalai. Not to be confused with Miller High Life. <laughs> not at all not. the same. Very, you, very different. If you can find the Cigar City Brewing Hyalai in a tap room near you or a grocery store, please, please check it out and thank me later. Well, I will thank you now. Uh, it was very good. And Josh, I guess we'll see you in a few weeks. See you in a few weeks. Thank you.